in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, then talk about them. Today, I'm very excited to say this. I'm always excited, but I'm more excited than those other times that I said I was excited. That's how excited I am, because we got a great movie. we got a great show. John Black, my co-host, is here with me. John, how are you doing? I am fantastic. Just ready for the year of Blade Runner. <laughs> and uh, with me is a very good friend, a former... Well, he's, he's a current co-worker, but he's remotely coming in from Lancaster, PA, Alex Driscoviak. Alex, how are you doing, man? I'm doing really well. It's great to be here. Looking forward to talking about this awesome movie. I got a few questions for you. These are going to be hard-hitting questions. Are you ready? Yeah. What do you feel about 30 Seconds to Mars, and do you have a favorite song of theirs? Oh, man. Yeah, speaking of Jared Leto, I don't have a favorite song, I'd say, anymore. After, you know, seeing this movie, I actually went back listen to some of their stuff, and I gotta say The Kill, I've, if I had to pick a song. Uh, I listened to 30 Seconds to Mars a lot when I was younger. I wanna say my high school days, but I honestly don't remember when they were big. It was that long ago. They never stopped, really. They, they just keep humming along. Do they? Are they still making music? Yeah, really they have. What is your biggest movie guilty pleasure? That's a tough one. Um, I kind of like these dumb brainless comedies. You know, with the likes of, like, Will Ferrell, uh, John C. Riley, which I was actually interested in seeing, uh, what is it, like, Sherlock and Watson? Yeah. I No, I haven't, but after I saw reviews. But I would say those are a guilty pleasure of mine, or really anything Simon Pegg is in, no matter what, I'll watch it. Oh, Simon Pegg's not a guilty pleasure. That, that, that's, yeah, that's very justifiable. No guilt there. Okay, maybe not, but I guess I'm more referring to his bad movies. That's like, right. I even love his bad movies. That's that's fair. Um, <laughs> so you are a renderer and graphic specialist and an architect, too. So you definitely have a lot of visual skills there. What one movie of any time making it would you want to do the visuals for? Oh, if I, man, if I had to pick one, that's tough. Well, if I had to pick one, it might be Mad Max Fury Road. Just the uh, the atmosphere of that post-apocalyptic post world was incredible there was a lot of supporting elements to that like the score to that was amazing but like the cinematics and the visual effects all of it stunning i really like that style but it's hard to like limit it to one since i was so stylized i guess that's a stylized one i would choose but other than that would probably be the cinematography in ex machina i'm really into that Love it's that a beautifully movie. shot film Beautiful house, actually two different locations um, for the same house. I really like the style, the feel of everything that they uh, created for that storytelling. I love that movie. The day that becomes retro, we have to do that on this show. 
But anyway, uh, what was the last movie you got to see? Well, the last movie I saw was Get Him to the Greek. <laughs> uh, Ann and I rewatched that, and I mean, it was just one of these evenings that we didn't know what to put on, and we just kind of felt like watching. And did they get him there to the Greek? <laughs> uh, they did. So Greek, I love it. Oh, uh, but that was uh, you know, it's really, it's, I think it's a really funny movie. I don't know if everyone appreciates those kinds of comedies, but uh, the walls are just so soft. <laughs> They're so soft. There's Jeffries, man. Watch out for those Jeffries. <laughs> you know, yeah, other than that, I actually, there was a couple movies that I saw recently that it's worth mentioning. Uh, the Wife was one of them, which turned out to be a stellar movie. Uh, I believe it has, it's Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. Bill Clinton popping in here. I gotta say, it sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> what? Bill Clinton? How, how are you doing? can't stay just had to say that sounds like a very terrifying movie the wife yeah gotta watch out for that one but incredible movie terrific acting um they really sold the the characters in it um and then bird box but that was dumb oh wow (laughs) wow i haven't seen it yet but everybody's saying great things about that so you've uh you've brought balance to well I understand that the source material that that movie's based on came out before, um, like a quiet place. So I, uh, I understand that, but a quiet place beat it to the silver screen. So no, that's fair. That's fair. It's kind of like the illusionist and uh, the, uh, what was the other one? The, the prestige. It's like, the prestige. Oh, the prestige was so good. <laughs> I don't remember which one came first, but I know whichever one came second. The got bar- Yeah. Uh, yeah. The illusionist. I, I was like, whichever one came second got buried. And it's just like, Hey, did you get enough magic? Well, we've got more magic. <laughs> well, one's got David Bowie. Uh, they have a tendency to win. <laughs> oh yeah. Dude. Tesla. Yep. Plays Nikola Tesla. Yep. Love it. <sighs> I don't know. With Bird Box, there was just some plot holes in it that seemed weird. Just like, I don't want to dwell on this movie. But one thing, like, when there's dumb, like, holes in a movie like this. So these kids grew up in this world where they can't take their blindfold off outside. And in the very first scene, Sandra Bullock is lecturing them how they can't possibly take their blindfold off when it should actually be the only thing that they know. If there's anything that they know for certain, it's that they can't take their blindfold off. I also know that they can't drive the bus at under 88 miles per hour. Uh, yes, that is the same movie as this one. <laughs> <laughs> so you said Sandra Bullock. Anyway. I know. No, everybody only thinks of speed, probably. That and the that blind side. The blind side. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Big Mike's on the bus. Um, so we got uh, today. Uh, it's time to officially introduce this. John, what movie are we watching today, man? Today, we are watching the 10-year anniversary of Mr. Nobody. That's right. It's the new retro. This came out in 2009. It cost four point, uh, Sorry, uh, yeah, it cost $47 million to make. It was the most expensive Belgium film ever made. Fortunately, after it was made, it got rejected in some of the film festivals it wanted to get into. It didn't get into the Keynes Film Festival. It didn't really prosper in Europe. They sold it to Magnolia Films, and it was re-released in the United States uh, years later. And they brought it out on the same day as Dallas Buyers Club, hoping to getting some press off of Jared Leto's performance in Dallas Buyers Club would fuel the movie. But it only got a limited release. And after five weeks of limited release, it only raised three 
uh, sorry, $3,622 in America. So this movie is super not profitable. Its worldwide grossings were only $2.3 million, so not far from uh, recouping the cost. So it didn't rank on any of the lists for what it made in that year because it's just very low. Uh, but people like this movie. IMDb gives it a 7.9. The audience score from Rotten Tomatoes is a 76%. The critics are a little harder on this one and give it a 67%. Financially, not a success, but uh, it's built a cult following. Absolutely. It's very... I'd heard about this movie so many times, uh, and I'd never heard of it being in production at all. Coming into this one, had you guys seen this one before? No, I, I hadn't seen it. It's been one that I've wanted to see for quite some time now uh, i just i realized it was quite a long movie and never made the time to sit down and watch it so this was a first viewing for me alex how about you uh yeah i've seen it a couple of times before re-watching it recently it was one of those actually since it was so long i put it on and then i'd only be able to make it through about an hour and then my second time I tried to watch it, I'd make it like an hour and a half. And then I think maybe my fourth time trying to watch it, did I actually see it all the way through? So when did you first see it? Oh, man. Um, that's a good question. I don't remember what streaming service I saw it on. Or maybe that would have been in the day that I did Torrents, actually. And I snagged it up. It may have been 2014 was the first time. Okay. And uh, what were your expectations coming back to it, being that you had been away from it for uh, not, not that long, I suppose? Uh, uh, my expectations for it were, uh, I guess, kind of high because I remembered really enjoying it because my first watch, I actually had the interpretation that it was hitting hard on alternate realities. That was kind of something I was listening to a lot, like when I listened to podcasts or um, Neil deGrasse Tyson discussions that was kind of something that he discussed a lot and it was just uh, something i really gravitated to so i saw the all the alternate timelines and i was really i'm really into that concept so i thought that was really interesting and then on this last viewing i actually realized that that all of it was more just this child playing out potential futures and none of it may have happened it came to redbox and we rented it and it was really good i knew it was coming because i happened to see the trailer for it on apple trailers and it would look like a indie flick and i really wanted to see it in theaters it didn't get to uh they didn't make it easy on me to see it in theaters and i loved it when i saw it my wife mary loved it as well and then sad story i went to a movie rental store the last one that i'm aware of in its existence in pittsburgh and the day that i discovered that there was still in fact one open they were on their closeout sale. And I picked up a Blu-ray copy of Mr. Nobody for $1. So it was a bittersweet day. It was sad to see the moving theaters in Pittsburgh all close up. Or, sorry, the uh, movie um, rental stores all closing up in Pittsburgh. But I came away with a really good deal on this movie. <laughs> and uh, I love it. And so I, have, I actually watched the uh, director's cut. So my cut added another 17 minutes. So if there are a little discrepancy here or there, that's because I have a slightly longer version than what you might see on the theatrical cut that was out there on Netflix. We're about to get into the plot summary and spoil this movie. But before we do, we have a message from a different timeline and a different reality. It is one of the possible realities of your president, Donald J. Trump, here from the White House. 
I've been working tirelessly with Vice President Kanye West on passing a bill where we will build a beautiful bridge to Mexico. Yes, we're going to build it right across the Gulf of Mexico to connect the state of Florida to the country of Mexico. When I'm not building bridges, I listen to my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. Please take a moment of your time to support the tremendous show by subscribing, rating, reviewing the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, wherever your podcasts come from, even if they're from Mexico. Those five-star ratings help people find the show. Like the show on Facebook and email John Russell at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Also tell a friend about the show. I told my good friend Angela Merkel to listen to the show. She's an incredible woman who I deeply respect. Angela is now a huge fan of the show. I have to run. I'm late for my interview at CNN. Kanye and I are then going to go golfing with my good friend, Porter Jim Acosta. I really love Jim. Remember, America, we're in this together. Wow, that's incredible. I can't believe that Jim Acosta and Trump just had that crazy day and that Instagram story was incredible. I don't know which reality we're in anymore. I don't. I, I just wonder how many more Trumps are there out there? <laughs> are they all orange? <laughs> Maybe somewhere he goes natural. <laughs> so, so, Alex, will you give us the honor of giving us a plot summary of Mr. Nobody? Yeah. All right. So bear with me. This is a tough one to summarize. All right. Mr. Nobody is a story about a man named Nemo, who is 118 years old, the last mortal on Earth. Because in the year 2092, all people are seemingly immortal because diseases have been conquered through cellular regenerative stem cell pigs, and they just want to know how he lived. Nemo recounts his life story to a psychiatrist and a reporter, but his memories are wildly inconsistent and incompatible, and at times fantastic and impossible. He recounts his life at three, mi- three primary points, at age nine, when his parents divorced, at age 15, when he fell in love, and at 34, as an adult. When Nemo was nine, his parents had to separate, and he had to choose whom to live with, whether to board the train with his mother or stay with his father. So Nemo moves with his mother, where he meets a girl named Anna at 15. He falls in love until she has to move to another city due to her dad's transfer. In the next moment, Nemo talks about how he stayed with his father when he was nine, and later, at 15, meets a girl at a dance named Elise. He begins dating Elise, but the next moment starts talking about how she said no when he asked her out, and instead dated a girl named Jean, another girl he met at the same dance when Elise said no to him. He lives a a huge number of lives with each decision. In a few of these lives, he abruptly dies in an accident. He can marry Elise and die in an explosion, or he can live an unhappy life with her when she becomes a victim of depression. He can meet Anna after many years to lose her again, or lead an unhappily married but extremely rich life with Jean. So which life did Nemo live? Was there a specific reason the character was named Nemo? Well, Nemo means nobody, and our character is indeed nobody. You would be surprised to hear that none of these events actually happened that we talked about earlier. There are actually three alternative parallel timelines that could have taken place in the film and in Nemo's life, depending on the choice of the nine-year-old Nemo, depending on whether he stayed with his father or moved with his mother. Thank you so much for the, thank you so much for that uh, plot summary. It is a lot to cover. Yeah, it really truly is. is. 
John, do you want to give us a quick rundown on the cast? Yes. So we have Jared Leto, as we spoke about before, playing our main character, Nemo Nobody, and he plays both the 34- and 118-year-old version of himself. Uh, he is a possible future seer, past seer, alternate reality seer, uh, a lot to really wrap your mind around type of person. Uh, an actor, Tony Regbo, portrays Nemo at age 15, and Thomas Byrne plays Nemo at age 9. And we have Sarah Polly playing Elise, one of the possible love interests for Nemo. She is one that is really wanting to be a great mother, family person, can't seem to put it all together. And she is played by Claire Stone at age 15. Diane Kruger plays Anna. Anna is also the stepsister of Nemo and probably one of the more intense love interests for him. And Juno Temple portrays Anna at age 15. Len Don Pham plays Jean, the third and final love interest for Nemo. She's a very passionate woman who really wants to give Nemo all the love she can. And Audra Giacomini plays Jean at age 15. Risa Fons plays Father Nemo, one of the main choices at the beginning of the film, while Natasha Little plays Nemo's mother, the alternate choice he can make during the film. Alan Cordiner plays Dr. Feldheim, the psychiatrist trying to help coax memories out of the oldest Nemo. Michael Riley plays Harry, who is Anna's father and therefore also Nemo's stepfather for a time. Daniel Mays plays the young journalist interviewing Nemo, trying to get the story straight. And the director, Jacko Van Dormile, actually makes a cameo appearance as the Brazilian man. And Harold Manning plays our almost Hunger Games-esque TV show host. So a lot of interesting people playing different versions of themselves. So it's a challenging role for this. So as we get into this one, uh, I don't know what you guys were impressions. Take yourself back to the first time you saw this. And how long was it before you th knew what was going on in this movie? Because it's quite disorienting to start with. Oh, that's really that, that's a good question. Uh, the second time I watched it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I would have to say the same. Uh, since I didn't get to see it all the way through the first time, or I couldn't really get all th all the way through it, I would say probably the second or third time I actually got deep into it did I act like really realize what was happening. I think it's one of those movies you got to kind of just let yourself go and not try to analyze it too much, at least upon first viewing, and just try to enjoy how amazing some of the other aspects of the film are, not just the theory. I, it took me a little while to get into it, but I'd say you, it's 20 minutes, I'd say, before it starts to really start to get some kind of like, okay, this is where we are. We're on parallel realities. I'm I'm digging this, and I want to see where it goes. Oh, uh, so 20 minutes. You're really like gloating there like oh it took you guys multiple <laughs> viewings it's not okay. as long as inception inception's always kind of like my benchmark of like i have no idea what's going on here and i'm starting to get angry 
Like I lo- I, <laughs> I looked over at this my wife. This one was far more mind bending in my opinion than Inception. Well, Inception but. was harder to say like what is happening. I think it's I think I remember going 30 minutes into that one and I looked over at my wife. Am I not paying attention? Am I getting tired or something like that cuz I don't understand. And it turned out I loved Inception in the end, but boy, they really uh it's a it's a slow payoff. I got to go into it right away since John went through the cast here. What do you guys think about Jared Leto on this one? He's got to play, he said in an interview, 12 different versions of the character. Alex? Wow. I thought he did incredible. He did a really good job like humanizing every character that he played, and you could relate to each one of them. You kind of cared about everyone. He was so convincing. A lot of the movie was focused on him. So for part of his performance reminded me kind of how... Um, I'm drawing a blank on what his name is. He was in 127 Hours. Franco? Franco, yeah, James, James Franco. Franco. So, yeah, so how that movie revolved around him, and it just kind of uh, the success of it was on his shoulders, essentially. But Jared Leto, here in the same case, a lot of all of all a lot of these characters, to make them feel realistic, I thought, were kind of, uh, it was up to him to make it happen, and he succeeded very well. So he said 12, and maybe you can help me out here, because I, I wrote down several, but I can't quite get to 12. We've got 118-year-old, like, Nemo in the future. You've got, like, pool-cleaning Nemo, uh, who, you know, was with Anna, and then they're separated. We've got, uh, we've got rich, successful Nemo, who's married to Jean and super depressed. We've got the good dad Nemo, who's married to Elise. You know, he's got the glasses and stuff. You've got science fiction story Nemo and space. You've got burned Nemo, whose wife died on like their wedding day. You got Professor Nemo, who explains scientific theories and philosophy to you. And you've got homeless Nemo, who's like in the like surreal deconstruction part of the breakdown part of the movie. And you've got surreal dream Nemo, who's got like all the argyle around him and. You know, everything's everybody's wearing this sweater and stuff like that. And there's caveman Nemo. I'm too short. Are there any other Nemos that you can think of? Or is Jared Leto crediting himself with two Nemos too many? I don't know. Is when time starts reversing at the end, does that count? I don't know. I think that's the thing. And even if you just get to 10, that's a tall order. I mean, it's tough to really get yourself ready for one role or two or three, like. But to have to switch back and forth to different mannerisms, personalities, uh, as men, as you already said, it, everything on his shoulders was just so tough, and I think he did so well with it. So actually, if he did credit himself with two extra, I, I don't mind that. <laughs> yeah, fine. He earned two extra, even if we didn't see them. Maybe Wedding Day Nemo. I don't know. The younger version of the same people. Hard to say. I don't know. Yeah, I would have to actually go back. I didn't know that he quoted. He could be quoted saying that. Um, now that's kind of like I want to go back and figure it out. I know. Maybe we don't see enough of the dimensions he mentioned, and we have to be able to see all those nine dimensions to, all to nine see the other two. Dimensions. It's yeah. like Where is Waldo? Can you find the 12 Nemos? <laughs> <laughs> Which there is another movie called Finding Nemo. Totally unrelated, though. <laughs> Completely unrelated. Probably not as good. I haven't seen it, though, so I shouldn't say, but I really like this movie, uh, revealing some of my cards for later. But uh, what do you... So he's playing all these characters. Alex, what are some of the 
acting tools that you saw him using that he put nuances on the character because it's the same person but because life has treated him or sent him down these different roads he is actually a different person well okay so there's some really basic ones that are kind of superficial or just on the surface we could say like his accent when he's with gene that's the one where he stayed with his dad and yeah he's british because he stayed in england right so there's that um what else? When he goes um, to Montreal, he doesn't talk like a Canadian. Oh, Anna, I'm sorry I didn't get to see you sooner. <laughs> so happy you're back. <laughs> Let's have some pancakes and syrup. <laughs> yeah, we missed that one. Too bad. That would have really taken off, I guess. But Oversight, number one. So, yeah, there was that, the one with his accent. Then there's the really basic ones. When he's with Elise, um, he's kind of... He is kind of so determined to make it work like no matter what he wants to make her happy but he can't because of her mental illness so he's kind of emotionally dead uh to a degree but in the little things like how he hugs her after or it's at least following the birthday party like the way he hugs her is like really convincing that he's become this character that has no other goal in life essentially other than essentially taking care of his family and making sure that his wife is happy or trying to become happy. His voice changes a lot within the different characters. Like what you're the one you're talking about now in particular, he's very gentle. Like, yeah, he's soft and he's sad himself too, by the situation, but he's holding it together for everybody's sake. So that really comes through. Somebody cracks and burns the car. (laughs) But yeah, there's just these subtle nuances and, you know, it's tone of voice, his mannerisms, and each one is kind of different. Uh, John, uh, do you notice how there are any similarities that, because this is the same person, ties them together? Yeah, and actually, I, I think this is one of the more impressive uh, parts of what he did. He was somehow able to relay, particularly when he was confusing names, calling people by the wrong name, uh, even his son or his wife, uh, relaying that he seems confused, but he's not because he knows he sees so much more than everybody else does. And that's a really tough thing to really wrap around confusion and understanding all in one. Uh, because he, he seems genuinely confused, but then seems to kind of immediately snap back to like, he he knows why he's confused. Uh, because he understands that there's these alternate versions of himself and choices and not making choices. Uh, and I, that's something I really appreciated about his acting there. I think it's interesting that the character remains quiet and perhaps withdrawn a little bit no matter which reality you go into uh that's something the younger actor does as well in the uh 15 year old version of himself and i thought almost aloof like yeah. just he's an introverted character who keeps his thoughts to himself largely and because he sees the world in a different way than everybody else does it somewhat makes him isolated and i thought that was really interesting how it's the same person like you know even if you had gone down a different path you know, you would still be an introvert or an extrovert. You would still have some of these same tendencies and stuff like that. I don't know where you land on that one, uh, Alex. Uh, do, do you feel like your life would be as different as, say, this movie if you had gone and made a few decisions differently? Yeah, it would be dramatically different. I could definitely see 
looking back now, especially with the way everything unfolded, just even in the last couple of years. Yeah, life could have diverged into a different path very easily. We could have a parallel universe Trump, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe in where I made different decisions. Then in that reality, we have Trump golfing with Jim Acosta. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I was going to say, I think that we've all encountered, you know, particularly when something bad happens, where we trace back where we made a seemingly innocent or good decision. If it's like, if only I'd have done this or I hadn't have done that, then this could have happened. And it's a dangerous thought process to get into. Um, but also at the same time, some of the best times I've had in my life is going to do some things that. I didn't really want to do. Maybe a friend convinced me to do them or something else, you know, told me, hey, just go do this thing with your friends. And then all of a sudden it turns into one of the better nights of my life. There you go. And uh, so let's talk about the director here. This is Jaco Van Dormel. What do we think of Belgium director Jaco Van Dormel? John, do you want to have any early takes on this one? Sure. I really enjoyed the movie, so I'm going to have praise for it. I was interested to read that uh, he was starting as early as 2001 to try to get this movie off the ground. And, you, you know, this is, I, I think goes without saying, a very ambitious film. And uh, he, he was very careful about the casting and reading about it. And actually there's some, were some cast members that were, at least in his mind, uh, he said that, like, N Natasha Little as the mother was the role that was the most decisive one for him in the film. And I wouldn't have thought that from the beginning, but I guess she really did do the role he was wanting very well. Um, and just getting all the moving parts of multiple storylines, visual effects, all of this together, I, I think he did a wonderful job, especially on the budget he was working with at that time it is a large budget though and he did have so it's it's a long shooting period it's a 120 day period uh considering how much work needs to be done uh it is impressive still um so for sure uh did you did you guys happen to see where he was particularly infatuated with two other movies uh one was called run lola run which came out in 1998. Mm -hmm. And another one is called Sliding Doors, which is in 1998. Um, I'm less familiar with Run, Lola, Run, but Sliding Doors is a Gwyneth Paltrow movie where she misses a train, and we see two different timelines for her, and they're dramatically different with where her character goes just on whether she catches a train or not. So you're going to see a lot of allusions to that in this movie where, again, a train and whether you get on the train or not makes a big difference to... Nemo's life. Yeah. He definitely was influenced by those, but I think he took what they did and I think he went even farther. So, yeah, I think he made something even more of it. Yeah, I have to agree with John. I mean, it was a super ambitious film. And yeah, taking that idea, you know, just as like what seems actually, no matter how you phrase it, I guess choosing to live with your mother or your father is a huge decision, but using like the train station, I didn't realize that he looked at other films for, uh, or use those kind of as inspiration for this, but totally makes sense in the train is incorporated. But I feel like that's a com maybe like, uh, one of those kind of story telling mechanisms, you know, should yeah. I stay or should I go kind of thing? Mm -hmm. 
uh, he even said in quote, uh, I was trying to tell the story, or I realized after seeing Run, Lola, Run, and Sliding Doors in 1998, I was, the story I was trying to tell was not binary. I was, uh, I was interested by multiplicity, by complexity of choices. And with this screenplay, I wanted to make the viewer feel the abyss and the infinity of possibilities. Beyond this, I wanted a different a way of telling a story, and I wanted the gaze of a child on his future to meet the gaze of an old man where he becomes his past. I wanted to talk about the complexity through cinema and simplifying the medium. While reality around us is more complex, the information is more and more succinct, and what interests me is the complexity. It's not simple answers. Yeah, well, I mean, he did, I, in my opinion, a really successful job with meshing the complexity of that and then actually stitching together a coherent story. Once you understand how it's all working together, uh, the complexity was fascinating because you do start with, you know, three basic timelines, but eat, within those timelines, there's actually, uh, you know, divergent storylines within that. And I think it all, it works really well together. But the complexity, in my opinion, was really made for a really successful movie. Did Anne see this movie? She did. She was there for one of the half viewings, and then we finally got through it together. So she's seen it one and a half times, I guess, but was not a fan. She didn't like the complexity in the same manner as I did. So I can see how that could be off-putting. So that's what I was going to ask. This, this, this is a thinking movie, and not everybody wants to go on this two and a half hour excursion yeah and really if you catch it in the different or uh i guess I should say i guess like um the improper mindset then you're not even going to enjoy the movie and you might not even want to see it again but if you did see it when you were kind of more receptive to such a complex story it could be totally different so i think it was really interesting as you mentioned uh, I, I noticed in some of the special features Jakob van dormel calls it the, the, the idea of a rail line splitting off. And you see this clip that he has in the actual movie where he is shaking the camera and the, the multiplicity of these train lines start to split apart. I love how he's literally using the setting of the train, but it's also a artistic version of what he's about to do with the plot. And it's splitting. And, there, and he likes the word, uh, he said there's split paths as well as junctures within those paths. And as you mentioned, he, he has two choices between his parents. Within that, there are three choices of women that he may choose to be with. And there are lots of different ways it could go, just based on something as simple as, hey, do you want to go swimming with me? And uh, that answer can have enormous ramifications, even with the same people involved, even with the same location. Yeah, absolutely. What did you guys think about the fact that there's a lot of focus on the teenagers in this movie. John, did you think there was something interesting part of the story about the ages of why they chose 9, 15, and what, let's assume, 30? It was 34. Thank you. I think. Yeah, 34. I, well, I believe particularly, you know, the 15-year-old the versions is that adolescence is a time where you're really experiencing so many different things for the first time, you know, and really understanding the emotional spectrum and how hard it can be to deal with. And actually, he, I, I watched a bit of a special features, a making of, and uh, the director, he'd mentioned that he liked working with kids because they're able to understand these emotions a lot easier without trying to delve into the complexities of the character. 
and particularly love being one of the central ideas with these encounters is it such such a difficult thing to work with especially i guess when you can see the future quote as he said and i i think that that's just when you know most people are really coming of age and that's when we have to make a lot of big important decisions in our lives on how we are going to wind up in adulthood yeah i agree with you i think the teenage years are where you make major decisions that can lead you on the path of what you do or who you're going to be with or what you're going to be like you're finding yourself basically exactly and alex did you feel like there was uh, thought put into why 34 uh probably because at that point in life people are really kind of uh, well established they have settled down and they're on i don't know if this is more pessimistic or it's a little darker but they're on the back side of life they're kind of you know they're establishing their families their careers established and they're just finishing things out like they've already experienced the decision making and discovering things for the first time and so you get like the before the middle and the after essentially with how he chose to do is the ages of Nemo. Yeah, I think 34 is a good uh, cross-section to see of like, hey, these are the results of the decisions that you've gone at this point. There's still a long way to go. And you kind of live with them at that point. Yeah. You know, I think they've chose that to say like, there are obviously differences and exceptions for people, but, you know, are you married? Do you have kids yet? These sorts of things often start to come into you know, clarity. And that actually that came up in this movie when uh, Nemo encounters uh, Anna at the train station. They mention her children. Um, so in that kind of timeline, he actually hasn't figured his life out yet as he's still kind of pursuing his uh, teenage love. Um, and then there's the Nemo that's with Elise who is settled down and he's like, I'm determined to make this work. And he even tells her, I'm never going to leave you. And then she's like, okay, and then leaves him. But it might be for the best. Well, for that, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one, yes. Speaking of <laughs> speaking of things that uh, for the best, we were talking about uh, parents and whatnot. Uh, did did Nemo's nine year old parents not think to ha ask him uh, on the train station? I think his mother really didn't want him to go with him that bad. She's like, okay, Nemo, you got to choose. You're gonna stay with your dad. Or you're gonna go with me. All right, I'm gonna hop on this train. Hey, by the way, if you want to come, you should catch this moving train. Right. Did they not have a discussion before they left that day? They're like, oh, we're going to go get ice cream and then we have a special surprise for you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I thought you told him. No, you told him. We agreed that you would tell him. It's like, <laughs> not it. <laughs> this is why I'm leaving you. <laughs> Thank you. Talk about communication breakdowns. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I mean, we saw earlier that this kid can't pick between desserts. He's going to need some time to absorb this decision. Right, he has to live with this decision. So one of the interesting mechanisms that you see through this, or I guess it's symbolic of, uh, there is a coin flip at a couple points in this movie. He's walking down the street and he flips a coin, and then he happens to walk past Elise and Anna and Jean. And there's another point where he's thinking about committing suicide in his life with Jean, where he's depressed and he flips a coin. And this coin is symbolic of, you know, I have a big decision to make right now. And Nemo's clearly, because of his ability to see the future and all things at once, these decisions become nearly impossible for him to make. So I really like the coin flip. And another major one was the leaf. Did you guys happen to notice the leaf kind of becoming a major event or a, I would call it a juncture as uh, 
they were saying where this could change the path of where we are at the moment. I didn't yeah, pick I, up on that personally, but sorry, John. Yeah, no, I, I, I did pick up on the leaf. It almost serves a little bit like the butterfly as far as the butterfly effect is, uh, you know, what, what that leaf does determines so many different things. His parents are meet by his father slipping on a leaf that had just fallen out of the sky. At the end, Nemo blows a leaf off into the wind. It's clearly not the same leaf, but a leaf falls on the ground right before Anna reconnects with him. When he's riding his motorcycle in rage that Elise has broken his heart and he crashes his motorcycle, a leaf hits the road and then he, in theory, slips on it. It's not. It's a little bit like a cartoon banana peel in that banana peels really aren't that slippery, but in the sense of it's symbolic and that you know these he crashes motorcycle his parents crashed and fell in love or you know these are major moments where things are coming together i like that mechanism and i i think maybe it kind of mirrors the idea of like you know the butterfly effect because it's like that being that a butterfly flaps and air moves and everything and what causes a leaf to move like that it's air causes it to go where it goes i think it has a lot of symbolism in the movie I didn't pick up on the subtlety of the leaf having this symbolic kind of play in the movie. That's why we do this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So another really fun one that I that they did, and I wish they had done a little more of, did you notice like how a simple eggshell that goes into a cookie that then uh, leads into a car crash that then leads to a woman's death, which alters the relationship of his parents and how they treat each other? And then another one is a raindrop is the result of condensation from a Brazilian man's, an unemployed Brazilian man's uh, apartment that then traveled around the world and then dripped on his card there. So, Yeah, I don't actually recall the eggshell portion at all. So the Nemo sees, in the director's cut, Nemo sees that uh, his father will hit a basically a woman carrying a baby stroller on the hill in front of their home. Well, I, I did catch the eggshell one, yeah, but the raindrop, yeah, that that was a different one, I guess. Well, that's the one where Van Dormel's the, uh, it, it makes yeah. his cameo. So he's the unemployed Brazilian, as you pointed out. So mm-hmm. anyway, let's go into some of the aesthetics of this, the filming style of Anna, Elise, and Jean. Did you pick up on how they made filming decisions based on which reality is. Because we talked about how Jared Leto is altering his voice. He's holding his posture in different ways. And did you see how they made aesthetic moves on this one, particularly maybe with the use of color? Uh, Alex? I mean, the ones that stick out the most, and maybe it's just my perception of the movie uh, and the relationships he has in it, but I think the scenes, especially when he's uh, younger with Anna, the, the tone changes. The color grading is slightly different. It's... It's, it's really warm, and it seems like that is what was favored. I mean, it follows, I guess, also the tone, because that was like a happy time for him when like they were outside smoking a joint together and then, you know, run, chase each other around the house afterward, um, contrasting with when Nemo's older with Elise, and it's very cool, and like the colors are very cool and cold. It's, it kind of just echoes the, the emotion. You're absolutely right. Van Dormel said he wanted to use reds with Anna. These are, you know, this is the color of love. You know, Elise has these blue colors. You know, the whole house is different tones of blue. Uh, nobody's house is that blue. Uh, but 
it's a stylistic decision and, and then, then gene was yellow that's right yeah yeah so you know the same dance that he goes to when he ends up with gene everything's yellow the lights in the ceiling are yellow but when he meets elise the house the, is yellow is too yeah yeah because right. he said, it just keeps going yeah exactly so and it really does carry through you know the colors carry through and sometimes there's nuanced like anna might be wearing pink but it's still a red hue i just thought that that was a very visually interesting way of doing it but another thing that he did with the color is as a when nemo's younger as you mentioned the things might seem more warm he wanted vibrant colors and around the home you'll see all these bright vases and wallpaper and everything's really bright and saturated but as nemo gets older there are basically fewer possibilities, so therefore there is less color that is in the shot. So nine-year-old Nemo's world is not as bright as, you know, the infant or the young Nemo's world. As he gets to be older in his 30s, it's even less colorful. It's more toned down. And by the time he's 118, everything's white. There's no color anywhere. So it, it is it, it in itself is visually sending you into this subliminal, like, oh, this isn't as romantic or there aren't as many things. The future is not as open. So as yeah, the future apparently is very bleak. Well, there's just fewer possibilities is I think how he was ah, thinking of yeah. it. So color, That's color, color equates to possibilities for him. John, did you have anything to add on to those kinds of things? Well, I, I liked what you were talking about with the colors that they were wearing, that the girls were wearing and, you know, you mentioned that, you know, red is, is typically associated with, with love and intensity but, you know, we like to say, you know, with Elise, you know, I'm feeling blue. And that kind of has foreshadowing that she has some issues later with depression. And the yellow with Jean, uh, when we call someone yellow, we're, we're kind of calling them a coward. I would uh, say luxury on that one because he ends up being this really rich guy. Like, it's gold. Could be luxury. But Jean seems to be just really... She wants his love more than he wants hers. It's it's just not reciprocated, unfortunately. I don't think she's a cowardly character. I, I think it might represent possibly Nemo's because there he just kind of settled. I'm gonna dan- I'm gonna marry the first girl I dance with. It's just I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, because at that point too, uh, when he's riding on his motorcycle with Gene on the back, he said um, like one of the things is he's gonna leave nothing to chance anymore. So it's essentially uh, I can see the cowardice in that that he's taking out any other possibilities he's taking the safe route because he couldn't possibly you know handle the risk of any other option no i I like that Uh, another one that i wanted to also call out is uh the visual effects here are supervisor lewis morin who's also known for his work in the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind i don't know if you've seen that movie but it's a it's a movie that trips with your reality it's got dreamlike sequences it's very surreal as well, and it's no coincidence that that, that same uh, mind helped contribute to the visual effects of this movie as well. Uh, I, I have seen uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's, it's been quite some time, and I did read that he was the same uh, supervisor for it. And yeah, when I read that, I was like, that makes sense, because that was also another movie that uh, it's quite trippy, as you said. J- just a lot to take in. I'd say the tones can be similar. There, there, there are a lot of bad things that can happen to Nemo. I think, uh, I think Eternal uh, Spotless Sun Mind also is a dark tone to the movie as well. <laughs> I would say it, it, it's got a darker tone. But... Yeah, I totally flubbed up the. What'd you guys think of the soundtrack, Alex? 
You know, I don't actually get into the sound as much. I don't quite have an ear for that. I mean, it was supportive to the the storytelling. It was fitting. It matched the atmosphere, essentially, to the colors and the tone of the movie. I think it matched pretty well. It's a mix of popular rock tunes as well as score. So There was actually like a lot of carelessness in the choices. Uh, I should say the, the sense of carelessness with like the rock music when they were younger and kind of being rebellious and doing this thing that they knew was wrong. Like that kind of stuff. Like those choices that they made, I thought was very fitting. Well, I, I, like they do like Buddy Holly's every day. Like it's, a, it's not anchored to the 70s where he's born, but it's like it is very sunshiny and happy. And then also Mr. Sandman comes when he's picking the mommy and daddy. And that's like this old, like timey, you know, everything's like super real. Like it's better than reality. And that's indicative of how he's portraying that time. But another couple, like as he gets older, uh, the Otis Redding song of uh, For Your Precious Love. It's a really kind of uh, an interesting airplanes are bad for rock and roll by the way otis redding shouldn't have died as soon as he did but uh nine-year-old anna dives into the pool and nemo's watching her and he's falling in love with her and you know otis redding's old you know like that his voice is just like is like ah that's what it sounds like to fall in love for me i don't know if you agree on that that that, this is one of the best music moments of the movie john uh yeah i mean because you know with otis redding i guess my first encounter with it really was in top gun uh but i loved and it's kind of a similar sequence in that movie where he, he's really falling for it but that was a good point part of the movie I, I agree Russell um, as far as the score I liked it because it it wasn't overbearing in any sense or emotional um, and it was actually quite simplistic sometimes not like extremely orchestral we're definitely not dealing with like 2001 a space odyssey or something like that and uh, then just the variety of the soundtracks I, I really loved because it gave us views of like what it's like to listen to certain songs when they're kids. And honestly, maybe it's just because Jared Leto's in it and he's also in Fight Club. But when Pixies came on with Where Is My Mind? This is what Alex was talking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like I, I just lost it. But, you know, the the Eurythmics, you know, Buddy Holly, like. But I, I like how they use the old movie with like Buddy Holly and stuff, like, uh, old music, when he's kind of seemingly playing with like the toy cars and things are seemingly very bright for the future and kind of an upbeat tone. I like how you said Otis Redding falling in love, but and just at a dance. Like I mean, we all remember middle school dances and high school dances. There's so many silly songs playing. Some we like, some we don't. Uh, yeah, that and that's the Wallace Con- Collection Daydream uh, song there. That's the uh, I fell asleep amid the flowers for a couple of hours, mm-hmm. singing all the day. I love that song. I didn't actually know what it was <laughs> until I looked it up for this, and I was just like, I need to get that song. It's one of those songs that I I know and I just didn't know, so to speak. So, and then yeah, Pixies has been in my head all week after watching this movie, which is the one that Alex was talking about where they're sitting out yeah. smoking pot. So yeah. It's very carefree. It's just it sounds like something to lose your brain cells to and just not care. So <laughs> And as John mentioned, there's sadness too. The original score is it's kind of strange. Van Dormel told the uh, writer of the score not to make it too emotional, but I find that the 
I find that the that hollow guitar sound that's just really simple. There's not a lot of layers going on. It's it's profound in a way, but I just love how the music. The subtlety is really nice. I think it lends uh, more attention to be focused on like uh, the characters and other elements to get enthralled in, and then it's just more of a supporting element instead of really pushing one way or the other. Do you guys want to get into look for this by chance? Do you have any other fun facts? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a few. One that I, I actually noticed toward the end of the film is that the uh, the train station there, the town or whatever stop it's called, is named Chance. Obviously, that has a lot to do with the movie. That's right. And there's also a platform number on there, and it says platform no number one. So it's N-O-1. And that's no one. No one. Oh. And uh, I missed that one. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> And then another interesting one, uh, when the father slips uh, on, in front of their house, that their house there is called Butterfly Lane. And th this movie mm -hmm. is all about the butterfly effect. And so I thought that was a nice homage there as well. Yeah, wow, those are really subtle. You'd really have to be hunting for that. So I'm guessing you read that somewhere. The no one, actually, I did that one on my own. Oh, the, wow. Yeah, yeah, the, the chance one is out there, I think. I don't know, if John, did you happen to spot that one of your own accord? I did. It wasn't until a, a later part of the film, but I saw it was called Chance, and I was like, oh, that had to be intentional. It's One, one I didn't catch was the recurring phone numbers, uh, 123 581 It's the start of the Fibonacci sequence, disregarding the random one in the middle. Wow, that's a deep math cut Dang. there. That's really that's a good cut. Man, you might get one of the that you you get a uh, point for one of the best look for this moments ever on the Fibonacci <laughs> sequence. That is well done. I was proud of myself for spotting number one on the planet. Wow, Russell, <laughs> yours is terrible compared to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The uh, This is kind of going back into the direction a little bit, but in the behind-the-scenes footage, they show the train station shot, and they, just, they shoot this train station so many times. It took three days to shoot this, and they, use, they shoot the boy running to catch up with his mother. They use a dolly to follow along with him. They're running along with a, and they cut it and they do it again. They put him in a go-kart, uh, sorry, not him, but the cameramen are in a go-kart. Then they have a man with a handheld running to get a sense of movement. They do it again with a crane. They do it from the actual train itself. And the boy who's doing this is running constantly for three days. And, you know, he's a good sport about it, but he actually told the director, I can run faster than this. You know, it doesn't look real if I'm like, kind of like fake running along. And so... I think that's pretty cool for, I don't know that he's actually nine, maybe 10 or something like that. A 10 year old boy to come tell the directors like, uh, you gotta make me run a little faster. It's not going to look real. So that's a pretty cool moment. Yeah. Um, and I guess one more thing, uh, to go back to uh, about a 30 seconds to Mars is making music a lot, but apparently after this film, Jared Leto, Leto took, uh, quite a break from acting just to focus on his band until he did Dallas Buyers Club in 2013. I'm pretty sure he made more than $3,000 in America with his uh, music, so. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he did. But he got an Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club, right? I believe he did, yes. Uh, yeah, so he's he's a pretty good actor, though. So He's just talented, <laughs> extremely talented. It really is. So I want to ask you guys, this is a big one, potentially. How does this movie affect you, Alex? 
how does it affect me? No, nah, it doesn't affect me as much as it did on my first couple viewings, but it like it's one of those that kind of simmers in the back of your mind and you kind of you think about the the philosophy behind it. Uh, it's just one of those it's kind of just it's I mean I can't explain it any better than it kind of just simmers in the back of your mind, not just about the movie itself, um, but more about the philosophical underpinnings that it's based on. Did you like those scenes and how uh, Van Dormel puts these inserts in there to tell you to think about whether it be the butterfly effect or the big crunch or entropy or these kinds of things? Like, did you enjoy how he is making a transition through those? Yeah, I did. I mean, I thought it was a really successful thing to put in the movie simply because of how the movie is. It's based on choice leading to entropy and then relating it back to time and then cleverly, you know, applying it to the big crunch and how entropy ends and putting in like the narrations of young Nemo talking about, you know, you once you mix the sauce with the potatoes, you can't separate them again. The smoke doesn't go back in the cigarette. It's all relating using like its mechanisms to explain the concept of entropy. And then the big crunch kind of unravels it all. And, you know, yeah, how it all relates and just these real concepts. I thought it was, it was fun. It supports the enjoyment of the story so much, I think. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, John. I mean, if we're thinking back to the 2001 A Space Odyssey episode, Kubrick does not like to spell things out for people. And I'm sure he would gag at the idea of giving these these people or giving the, the viewers so much to chew on to direct them. But personally, I like it. I don't know about you. I do like it. And it's a lot to take in at once. And honestly, having just seen it for the first time, I feel like I need to watch it a couple more times to really wrap my head around it because, you know, and even string theory and chaos theory, I've always enjoyed kind of reading about it, at least what I can understand. There are so many things going on at once. I I had to make sure during the movie to not let myself run too far along with thinking about these ideas and make sure I remember I was watching a movie. Okay, so you were probably pulling out of it a little bit because you were tempted to go deeper. How does this movie affect you, though? The idea of choice, really, and how it affects everything. Every little choice can affect so many different things, uh, meaningfully or not meaningfully. But I, I, I think that it's also just partially... I, I, I liked a lot of the scenes of, of the 118-year-old Nemo and, and his recollection of it and how some of it seems to be not only contradictory but fuzzy at times as we age, you know, what what will be happening and how we might be looking back to things that we used to do that people don't do anymore that we wish we could do. I, I really like when he's talking about, it's like, Oh, we ate meat and we screwed. Everybody's always like screwing. And everyone's always screwing. I, you know, I, I loved that part. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, I wonder, because I look at kids now, it's like, you know, eight year olds using Wi-Fi, and I'm like, geez, what if I had that when I was eight years old? And by the way, it took old man Nemo five hours to get ready to do those scenes. I believe it. Each time. Each time. I know. it was a, it's, it's amazing. For me, I often think about the choices I made in life that got me to this point. Uh, the delicate nature of what profession to choose, but then an, and where that led me to go to college, and then who I met to marry and who I live my life with as a result of that, what city I moved to based on the profession that I chose, and how all of that can come back to a simple thing. For me, as an architect, I took a drafting class in seventh grade, and it was an elective. 
and I I liked it. I took it again in ninth grade. I had a teacher who came in and then explained, hey, if you like this stuff, you might want to become an architect. And by the way, I'm from the University of Tennessee. That's where I ended up going to school. So the simple fact of filling out my school schedule and the manner in which I did led me to live in Pittsburgh with a wonderful wife and a job I actually really enjoy and enjoy going to work every day. And I'm blessed to be happy to do all these things. And it's amazing to me that I took that class. I'm sorry, it was in eighth grade. I took that class because I liked my AV class in seventh grade with that teacher. And I all because I liked that teacher, I wanted to take another class that he taught the next year. And so, hey, I'm using my AV uh, knowledge here on the show, I guess, too. So it all comes together. Yeah, I mean, if we really, everyone can do it. It's kind of fascinating. If you go back, you think about exactly how we got here, you can kind of plot it out, all the decisions that you know you made. It's pretty fascinating. I like how that movie does that to us. I love can it. can do that. Yeah. I mean, and there's no end of it either. Like, like just as there are infinite possibilities, it's really interesting to think like, you know, I considered like, what if I had gone to WVU with John, you know, I wouldn't have been able to study architecture. I would have been maybe an engineer or something like that. And that would change the way I view the world. And I might be a different person or, you know, um, I admittedly didn't get into my first choice of school. So if I had gone to Penn state, like was my first choice, um, you know, I. I didn't, uh, I wouldn't be necessarily the same person I was. I might not actually live in Pittsburgh. Uh, I went to my second choice and yeah. it, it worked out great for me. I would not go back and undo anything at this point because I like where my life is. So, Yeah. They're all the right choice. That's what he said. And they all have just as much meaning. I do like the idea of having a simulator in heaven where it's like, what if I did this one thing differently? What would that look like? Like a video game. Uh, see, that's a dangerous thing. I don't know if I necessarily would like that. that I'm kind of, uh, I like the blissful ignorance of it. Thing. I'm really, you know, you just kind of have to be satisfied. I mean, I'm not speaking for myself, but like some people that can get wrapped up in this. Uh, you have to be satisfied and confident in the decisions you make. Anyways, uh, think about confidence of choice, like, or uh, be confident in the decision you're making um, because you can't go in a rabbit hole and kind of end up like oh Elise there like well what if I stayed with Stefano or what if I you know would have done this or that or whatever else uh kind of instead of like focusing your efforts on the decisions you do make and then all that you can do is make the next decision no the next choice well I think it's time to get into my favorite part of the show you guys ready for some superlatives always all right I love superlatives (laughs) Alex who is your MVP Oh, I would have to say Young Nemo, uh, the actor. Um, I don't the know. Fifteen-year-old one. Yes, Toby Regbo. Yeah, I thought you know he was incredible. There's a lot of depth to the characters he was playing. Now Jared Leto. Uh, now this is kind of like the Drew Brees argument right now. Like we could give him the MVP because he's so talented and everything, but I think he was kind of outplayed by the young, the fifteen-year-old yeah. Nemo. Wow, okay. I was predicting a clean sweep on this one, but uh, we're already in parting ways, and that's okay. John? Uh, Ironically enough, I'm going to have to go with Jared Leto. Uh, I think particularly the 118-year-old Jared Leto, I think he did an excellent job with that. I think he did a great job all around, but bringing that age kind of personality to that character, I thought he did a wonderful job. Just not too curmudgeon-y, but just enough and a little sarcastic when he's flipping off the little flying eyes and stuff like, I, I, I think really the movie 
is is carried by him. I'm with you, and uh, I just want to add that Jared Leto is an amazing actor, and I watched the movie three times this week just because I love it so much. And uh, uh, I had a little bit of extra time over Christmas as well, uh, and I really, really enjoyed seeing the different nuances that he brings to the character, but he makes sure that there are defining things that are still him that are uh, similar. So we kind of talked about that earlier, and he just did a great job of that. So and I very nearly picked Van Dormel as the director, but I go Leto here. Best Supporting Actor, Alex? Ah, oh, the Best Supporting Actor. Hmm. Regbo kind of is a supporting actor to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, after hearing, okay, so obviously, yeah, Jared Leto was spectacular in this, but I just didn't want to give him the MVP because that would just be too easy. But, yeah, I guess I'd have to go give it to, I'm sorry, what was his name, the young actor? Toby Regbo. Regbo. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to go back and change. My MVP, fine. I'll make it unanimous. Jared Leto. It's a sweep. Yeah, <laughs> and and then best supporting actor has to go to... Uh, Regbo. I actually went with uh, Reese Fons, uh playing Nemo's father, and I, I just think he brings such multifaceted talent to that role. From times he's happy, when he was disabled, it was awesome. Yes, I mean mm-hmm. all, all, everything, and I, you know, the director picked him because of Notting Hill, actually, where he, he was able to show so many different sides. Uh, of, of his acting and you know and since then he's done so many movies where he's he's shown that but he, he was my favorite there, there were some other great supporting actors but I think that's my pick for sure I, I'm glad that Alex picked Toby Reg, Regbo because I'm going to give him a nod but Sarah Polly does the depressed Elise so well it's it's hard to watch it's very realistic you feel so bad for Jared Leto's character as well as her she's truly a tragic character because her brain just doesn't work and she breaks down crying in the street and I thought she did that very convincingly so I'm going to go with Sarah Polly on this one but I'm really glad that uh, Alex you picked Toby Regbo yeah I mean she yeah she, she was, was my uh, number excellent. two yeah um, I wanted to pick her as well <laughs> Well, we uh, that's again, that's why there are three of us. So we, yeah. we spread we spread the love around sometimes. Hidden gem, uh, Alex. I don't know who I would really select as a hidden gem. I probably would have said somebody more like uh, the father actually for this, but that must not have, not very hidden in there. Um, it's in a movie where there's not actually very many minor roles because the number of times each character reappears, you're dealing with a pretty small set of characters it's just done yeah. in so many different ways so this is a challenging movie to do that i don't know i actually so in the setting that they made like i didn't necessarily like any of the um the characters um set in the future other than the journalist i, I just simply because he was there ushering in or like kind of squeezing the story out of nemo so i would guess i would i would say him john my hidden gem uh was juno temple playing the younger anna uh, I'd already seen her in a, in a movie in theaters uh, called Atonement, in which she did a very good job. And I saw her in this, and she didn't disappoint me again. I, I think she really played the role with a lot of emotion and uh, just some spunk that not all actresses that age could have. Ah, uh, yes, a love affair that would make even Greg and uh, Marsha Brady blush. So yeah. it's okay. 
you know, the Flash can. Yeah. Uh, the, the Flash has a thing for his uh, stepsisters too. So uh, if if the Flash can do it, uh, so can so can uh, Nemo. I'm gonna go with my hidden gem, Thomas Byrne, who does the nine-year-old uh, Nemo. This is the little boy running to catch the train. Um, I just, I've kind of talked about some of the nuanced uh, things that he did in running, and you know, I liked him in the pool scene a lot where Noah's writing's playing. So I'm gonna go with nine-year-old, good kid acting from Thomas Byrne. If you could recast or had to recast one actor in this production, Alex, who would it be? Uh, see, that's, I don't know. That's really difficult. Um, I mean, everyone's role was pretty well done or well executed, I should say. It's pretty tight. I did, you know, I didn't love the performance by the mother. And it was kind of funny that you said that the <laughs> director picked her. So I guess in the back of my mind, I don't know who else would be kind of more engaging. Actually, I mean, I have no idea because the, I think everybody is executes their character, you know, really well. I just think about it like off the top of my head, and this is kind of weird, but I really enjoy Tilda Swinton. Swinton? That's yes. a different mother character for sure. Well, not a different mother. I think actually as Elise. Uh, oh. So we would have seen a little more of her. She, uh, I think she has a lot of like emotional depth in her characters. So I think that would have been good to see, but the current actresses, she's really good. So I don't, nope. I don't know. Well, more people would have paid to see it. That's for sure. So Well, uh, yeah, another... That would have cost even more. Yeah, maybe it would have. John, uh, recast. Well, one that I, I'd have to mention, and she was actually offered the role, and I would have liked to see this. And I, I, I do like Diane Kruger, but I think Ava Green as Anna could have been terrific. Oh, man, I wouldn't replace Diane Kruger. Oh, actually, okay, so my opinion on the, the film and what this was, I mean, they really hammered home that kind of Anna, Anna and... Nemo's relationship was kind of it was the most crucial that was if you had to pin down a reality that was the most real it was the one that involved Anna and yeah maybe somebody that was maybe better than Diane Kruger she didn't make a huge impact like actually the actress that played Elise as an adult I felt made more of a splash in this movie than Diane Kruger yes Oh, I feel bad for Diane Kruger. Maybe I'm just being biased. She's a very pretty lady. So. I don't think she, she, she is, and I, I think she did an all right job, but I, I think Ava Green is an outstanding actor. You didn't like her performances in great movies like National Treasurer? Troy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's not nice to her. Um, anyway, um, my recast, I actually am going to come back to the character that Alex mentioned about the young journalist interviewing old Nemo. I want to do this not because I think that he did a bad job, but because I want to see something different from the character. I want to see the young journalist be a little more confident, like he's busted into this room, and the old man's like, I'm not talking to you. I don't have anything to say to you. And I would like a witty sarcastic comeback that makes the old man laugh and say like okay i'm entertained by you you've got you've got initiative and you're funny and i'm interested in you now so sure i will talk to you which was a very different dynamic than this kind of just bumbly nervous young journalist and uh so for me i'm thinking back to the amazing spider-man role which i don't care for that movie as much as other spider-man movies but i actually would like to get andrew garfield to do the role of the young journalist, also a British actor, to come in and do this. And I, this is one year before The Social Network. Uh, he has not broken out. You could actually get him. So Andrew Garfield is the young journalist. That's, that's where I go on that one. Okay. Hmm. 
See, I kind of liked the bumbling journalist. Like, he was way out of his depth, kind of approaching this unknown person. I don't know. I liked him, personally. Okay. Okay. Best cinematic moment, or sorry, best shot, uh, Alex. Well, the cinematic moment, I mean, I'll go back to it. I've talked about it numerous times, but it's when uh, Nemo and Anna are hanging out, smoking a joint. Um, I mean, I loved the colors of it. I loved the music, uh, the acting, and it was, I thought it was all very nice. Um, That's a good one. Yeah. John, best shot? Well, actually, I, I decided this one on the second time of watching it. Uh, earlier in the film, when Jared Leto's looking in the mirror in one of his homes, and it zooms in, it shows him and his mirror image, but then it zooms in kind of to his perspective and him looking in the mirror. And then you can really see it come out that he's really looking into himself as to like who he is, where he is, where he should be. Uh, he seems a little lost. Like, that is a good one. You, so they did this with two cameras. Did you happen to see how they're following him into the room and then it turns and then it follows, then it actually assumes the position in the mirror, but then it like the camera comes out of the mirror? Yes. But, yeah. So they did this by making a pull away of the counter and the actual cameraman, there's two cameras. So one walks up to the mirror, pauses and cuts and they position that camera in the exact same position as another camera, which actually is standing behind the mirror with no mirror, with no glass in it. And they pull the counter away and that cameraman follows Jared out of the room. It's seamless in the movie and it's very subtle, but uh, it's a very well-crafted shot. I love your choice. I, I figured it was tough to do. I'm glad you uh, cleared up on how it was done. So the other one that I'm going to pick here is, and I very nearly picked the one you picked, by the way, but I like this moment in the movie. It just makes me happy. When Nemo and Anna reconnect, they go to bed together uh, as adults, and it flashes back to moments mm. of where they're young and old, and you see Anna's young face, and then Jared's, or sorry, not Jared, um, Nemo's older face, adult face, and then it goes back to her, and she's a... You see the young and old version of each character. And yes. I think that that is just so well done. They're under the sheets. The quality of light's very similar to what it was when they were in their bed as teenagers. And I really enjoy that. And if anybody's upset by this movie or feels a little bit uncomfortable that 15-year-olds are in bed together, whatever, A, first of all, that really happens. And B, second of all, these actors are like 22. So, Yes. <laughs> Thanks for getting that disclaimer out there for all your listeners. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I was actually thinking the same thing. Like, this might be off-putting to some people, like, make them a little uncomfortable. I have a friend or two who I think will kind of sit there and go like, I felt, I felt skeezy watching this. And I'm like, they're not, as old, they're not as young as they actually may appear. So as Hollywood always does, they get older people to play those characters. So, Yeah, they can't exactly have 15-year-olds doing this on screen. I, I don't know what they can do in Europe. <laughs> uh, Roman Polanski still over there. Ooh, best best scene, Alex. That's tough because you actually just brought up a scene. That scene of um, them reuniting Nemo and Anna for the <laughs> for that first time in the train station. That might be my favorite point um, and how it echoes back to their younger their younger years. So tying that in actually, you know, back to the time with the best shot. Like it's very reminiscent of that, obviously. Um, just because I love their that plot line so much, <laughs> Nemo and Anna. John, uh, what is your best scene? It's one of one of the 
certainly darker mo- moments of the film, but I'm actually going to say where uh, Elise has the breakdown, and this is why I also wanted to give Sarah Polly uh, possibly a nod at the best supporting actor. Uh, she does it so well, and it's so tragic seeing him really trying to hold this family together, uh, Nemo, try to do all of this. And she portrays, like, if you've ever known anyone with borderline personality disorder or depression, it's such a a different type of illness. And she does it so well. And it just really portrays kind of the hopelessness of that that life. Her acting really carries that scene. So, But more specifically, Sarah Polly's performance of portraying those polarizing moments of Barking like a dog, you know, and jumping up and down and then, you know, break, crying in the street. And it, it's just it's a different type of disorder. And she she did it very well. Well, Alex made us feel really good by the one of the high points of the movie. And then uh, you went you went you brought whole another down. direction. Yeah. <laughs> Debbie Downer. It's all about womp, balance, womp. man. <laughs> Uh, so for me and the best scene, I have to go with the train scene. It's what the whole movie hinges around, really. It's that moment where the nine-year-old boy is faced with the decision. And as I mentioned, this thing is masterfully shot. I love the poignant piano music here. It's really an amazing scene. And so for me, I think the most important as well as my best scene is the train station. Alex, if you could change one thing, you're Van Dormel. What are you going to change? If there was some way he could have put it in that we got a glimpse of what Nemo running off to nothing was, and then kind of getting a glimpse into what this other life was. Um, Because I kind of got the feeling that's what the final scene was when we see homeless Nemo essentially waiting at the, the lighthouse. And part of me thought, like, okay, maybe this was actually part of a timeline where he still meets Anna, like they were destined essentially to meet and this is where he didn't make a decision. And it's actually where he's the happiest. Because in every other one, he's miserable. So it's not a ne- necessarily any one scene. But if there was like, uh, yeah, maybe just a little bit of clarity into the brighter, what I thought was the brighter part of the movie. No, that's a good point. And by the way, uh, to, uh, kind of along the lines of what you're getting at there, too, with the different sad zones, I thought it was really interesting that the director picked all death scenes that are uncontrollable to him because if he had a heart condition, he would have just had to have a heart attack seven times over. But uh, it was very interesting in that, you know, he gets shot, he drowns, he gets in an explosion. Everything's very different. John? You know, I kind of figure with this type of movie, uh, having... Uh, a long film film is all right and the only thing i'd change is maybe let's just add on everything i know that can didn't let them with the original cut because it was too long but just put all the deleted scenes in there if we're in for a really long ride already uh let, let let's go ahead and see it all wow so he wants more i like it okay one change thing, and I kind of mentioned this earlier with the nature of the interviewer and older Nemo. I'd like to see again a kind of a back and forth where they uh, kind of build a bond together and through the storytelling. And then I do have to pick on one tiny little thing. Uh, Jared's got these really blue, blue eyes and he's got this dark, dark hair. He genetically 
I don't think you get his him from these two parents. Uh, if you could just dye the oh mother's hair God. black, if you could just dye the mother's hair black, it, 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 it kept bothering me. So I don't know. That's very like a nitpicky thing. <laughs> Best quote. This one was easy. In response to the journalist being confused, asking which was the right life, uh, he says each of these lives is the right one. Every path is the right path. Um, that echoes something that I was saying earlier about being having some confidence in your choices. Well, it's the wisdom of an 118-year-old man. So, uh, John, best quote? Well, there are lots of quotes in there, but I, I kind of touched on one I just really liked before. It's the exchange they have about life before quasi-immortality. Uh, when he's saying there, there were cars that polluted, we smoked cigarettes, we ate meat. We did everything we can't do in this dump, and it was wonderful. Most That's of the time, nothing quote. happened. Like a French movie. <laughs> he said, like sexually, before sex became obsolete, ha, we screwed. Everybody was always screwing. But then more importantly, he adds, we fell in love. We fell in love. That is a good one. That's really good. Mine's going to be very subtle, but I really thought this was a clever line. While Professor Nemo is getting done with his shot, his, he has a substitute director, and he says, should we do it again? And she kind of is short with him, and she says, drop it. In life, you get one take. If it's bad, you just have to deal with it. That is a strong message to the people, as along the lines of what Alex was saying, perhaps put a little more bluntly. You only get one, and you need to make it count, and you can't get too caught up on what could have happened. That's a good one. I like it. So we've come to the end of our road, and we can't complete our journey without rating and reviewing this movie. So on a five-star scale, Alex, what do you think about Mr. Nobody? Does it hold up? Well, I would say it absolutely holds up. Um, now, to rate it, I'd love to give it a five out of five. But knowing how different audiences would receive this, I would have to take that into account and give it a four out of five. Four out of five. Okay. John, how about you, man? Well, this was my first time viewing it. Uh, but as far as I can say, I think it holds up. Uh, the effects are still very good uh, for being 10 years old. I'm going to go ahead and give it a four and a half out of five. Uh, I think it has deep emotional and scientific thoughts uh, that really leave the viewer thinking long after they watch it and probably wanting to watch it again as I myself would like to watch it a time or two more. Uh, as for me, I think this movie is aging incredibly well. I have I had it initially slotted in at number 33 on my science fiction movies countdown and uh, I actually bumped it all the way up after watching it three times this week or, or so. I have it at number 15 now and it means it's only trending up which means this is very rewatchable you get more and more out of it each time you see it and so uh, for me i give this movie high marks and a five star rating and i just think this is a great movie so i'm gonna go a little bit higher so there's one little funny story i failed to mention earlier and so i'm watching it this time i'm back home in west virginia for christmas and uh, mary's dad is a huge fan of science fiction movies so we watched mr nobody with the her side of the family and uh her mother watches about an hour and 20 minutes of the director's cut or maybe an hour 25 minutes and right as he's drowning for like the 500th time or whatever she says i can't watch the drowning anymore i'm gonna go to bed 
I was like, you're five minutes away from the finish. <laughs> oh, Sharon. <laughs> I was just like, what are you doing? Don't go. It gets happy. I promise. Just come back. <laughs> and like, so the next day she goes, the movie's kind of sad. I was like, it doesn't finish that way. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. Yes. So, Russell, uh, what three movies do you have picked out for next week? I've got three options for you, man. We can do option one, Vertigo from 1958, where a former police detective juggles wrestling with personal demons and becoming obsessed with a hauntingly beautiful woman. Option two, The Steel Trap. A bank officer discovers a flaw in the U.S. extraction treaty with Brazil and decides to take advantage of it. On Friday, he steals a million dollars from the bank. Uh, And option three, The Maltese Falcon from 1941. A private detective takes on a case that involves him with three eccentric criminals, a gorgeous liar, and their quest for a priceless statuette. Ooh, you got got a few good picks there, but uh, I gotta say, yeah, you had me with Humphrey Bogart. I, I gotta go with the Maltese Falcon. Sounds good, sounds good. As always, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. It's, you've been really fun to have on for your first time. We really enjoyed having you on all the way from Lancaster, PA. Uh, it, this is a hard movie to break down, and I'm really glad you came in to do it with us. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we'll do it again soon, I hope. Absolutely. I hope so. To all the listeners out there, Thank you for listening. Please, please, please go to RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com and write to us to let us know what your thoughts are on the show. More importantly, go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and review. That really helps the show get found by other people. If you like it on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, help us spread the love around. And I don't often say this, but tell a friend. If you have a friend who loves movies, uh, word of mouth is very important to us as well. You can like us on Facebook. And we are always looking for ways to engage with people. If you want to come on the show, uh, we're open to that at this point in time. So uh, reach out. Hope to hear from you guys. We'd love to hear your feedback. So, John? Where we're going, we don't need roads.